Good evening, everybody. And, uh, oh, we'll not go with our church without walls. I'm not here to talk about money. And uh, maybe Richard will talk about that later. But we're going to continue tonight our Essential Word series. This morning we're in the book of Judges. As Richard said, we're going to turn tonight to the book of Ruth. And as we start, and as you turn the pages trying to find Ruth in your Bible, David this morning said Judges was the seventh book. I haven't counted them, but I'll use his maths. So Ruth must be the eighth book. And as you turn and find that book, I'm going to throw out a similar challenge to David to you this evening. He set out the challenge to read the book of Judges this week. He said it would take about an hour. Time it. See if he's right on that there. I'm going to throw out the challenge to read the book of Ruth. There are only 85 verses, four chapters. It should take about 15 minutes. A cup of coffee in one hand, Bible in the other. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, that seems a bit more appealing. One hour for Judges. 15 minutes for Ruth. I don't think it's an either or. I think you could do the two parallel. As Richard also says, what we're going to read tonight in the book of Ruth happened at exactly the same time as the book of Judges. And it'd be a great comparison to see what you read in the book of Judges and the darkness and the sad stories and the shining light that happens at the same time that we read about in the book of Ruth. So there's a challenge, a double challenge for you this week to get into God's word and to read these scriptures for yourselves. Now, as I say, there's 85 verses. We're not going to have time, unfortunately, to read all of them this evening. We'll pick out some key verses that will help with the narrative, will help with the story, and will also shine some light on some of the great truths that we discover here. So we'll start at Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Milon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out in the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant to each of you that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and wept aloud and said, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. And as we read on the story, we discover that's not true. Only one of them went back, Ruth. The other returned back to her own people in Moab. And as we follow in the story, the end of chapter 2, they returned to Bethlehem. And they return empty-handed, and they're poor, and they need food. And so Ruth goes out into the fields to gather some grain. And she comes across into the field of Boaz, and she catches her attention. And then we'll move through into chapter 3, and we'll pick it up at verse 1 of chapter 3. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you'll be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, 
but don't let him know that you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie there. He will tell you what to do. doesn't sound like the most romantic situation, lying at his feet. But then verse 9 reads, Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. That might seem like a strange phrase to us, but basically what she's saying there, she's asking him to make his legal claim over her and to redeem her. And then verse 10 reads, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. And so in the morning, he's true to his word. He goes off uh, to meet the, the rulers in the town, ask the other closer relative if he will redeem Ruth, claim the land, and also marry her. And the man he's interested in the land, but he's not interested in marrying Ruth. And so we'll pick up the story again in verse 13 of chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. And so reads God's word. But if I was to ask you this question tonight, I wonder how you would answer it. What is the world's greatest love story? What's the first thing that would come into your mind? For many of you might think of this one, probably the world's most famous love story, Romeo and Juliet. Perhaps for some of you who are fans of Jane Austen, this might be the one. Mr. Darcy and Miss Bennet in Pride and Prejudice. Maybe to be a bit more topical as we think about the great marriage that's going to take place later this month, this couple might come to mind. Will it be the world's greatest love story? Or will it go the way of, sadly, a lot of other royal marriages recently? Well, if we bring it back into our own church context here, maybe two other names might spring to your mind. David and Glynis, who in the past week have just celebrated 20 years of marriage. Congratulations to them. Would you like to see a photograph of them on their wedding day 20 years ago? I would as well. Unfortunately, I don't have one tonight. David's just wiping the sweat off his brow. Perhaps by next week we'll have that photograph to go up on screen. All I can say is David must have married a very young bride. But as we move into the Bible, how would you answer that question? What's the greatest love story, the greatest romance in the Bible? Perhaps you might think of Isaac and Rebecca. He loved her as soon as he saw her. Or maybe his son Jacob, who was willing to work many years to claim his bride, Rachel, for himself. 
I'm sure many of you think the greatest romance in the Bible would think of this story we've been thinking about tonight, Ruth and Boaz. And as we go through the story and work through it tonight, there's great elements of love and of kindness and of care. It's a real contrast to the stories that we read about in Judges. And this is a great love story, but it's not the greatest love story in the Bible. There's a greater one, and Richard has alluded to it already tonight. The Bible talks about this great love story, about Christ and his bride. Now, what do we mean by that? In certain places in the New Testament, the Bible talks about the church, those people who have loved Jesus Christ, who have trusted him as a savior. It talks to them about being Christ's bride. And right at the heart of the Bible, as you will see this as we work through the Bible this year, the Bible's a love story. And it's the greatest love story the world has ever known. The Bible teaches that God himself is love. And he demonstrated that love by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus left heaven and he came into this world to rescue and redeem people like us. He paid a great price to claim us for his bride. And as we think specifically about the book of Ruth tonight, Ruth is a great love story. But it's also a vital part of the greatest love story about Jesus Christ coming into the world. And in the book of Ruth, love displays itself in great acts of kindness. As you sit down and take this challenge this week of reading through the book of Ruth, maybe with a pen and a hand, try and underline or note how many times the word kindness appears. It's repeated time and time again. And the Hebrew word that's used is a word called hesed. And it's a rich word. It describes a loyal love that demonstrates itself in kindness. It's actually the word used in the Bible to describe God's covenant love for his people. We've been thinking about God's covenant love as we've been working through this E100 series. And this rich love and kindness is demonstrated in the book of Ruth in the interaction between the three main characters, between Ruth and Naomi and three Boaz. Let's think a moment about Ruth and Naomi, a woman and her mother-in-law. And as you read through this story, it's not the normal relationship between a woman and her mother-in-law. There's lots of jokes you can crack at this stage, and I'm not going to go there. But I wonder what your experience is of that with a woman and her mother-in-law. Quite often there's tension in that relationship, but we don't see it as we read through this story. Instead, we see love and kindness. Right at the end in chapter 4, we just read it. Some people describe Ruth as better than seven sons to Naomi. Great love and kindness. And we also see great love and kindness demonstrating how Boaz treats Ruth. The care he has to protect her in the field so no harm comes to her. To give her food. To meet her needs. And then he doesn't hang about. Often males do hang about in the whole issue of romance. Boaz makes his intention clear. He said, tomorrow I'm going to sort this out. And he's true to his word. And he goes And he claims his bride. We see great love and kindness in the interaction between these three characters. But more importantly, we see great love and kindness, perfect love and kindness in God as he's displayed in this book. And that's what we really want to think about tonight, God's display of love and kindness. And we see God's love and kindness displayed, first of all, in providing Ruth. The irony of this book is it starts and it appears that God isn't kind and he isn't loving. Let's turn back to chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 19 through to 21. We didn't read these verses earlier. But as Naomi returns, and she arrives back in Bethlehem, and everybody comes out, and they see her, and they meet her, she says these words in verse 19. 
So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call, my Naomi, call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And as she returns to Bethlehem, in her eyes she's returning empty. Her husband has died, her sons have died, and she blames God. But the truth is, she's not returning empty. She's bringing one important thing with her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And Ruth is a character in this book who demonstrates great love and kindness and care. She shows it, first of all, in verse 16 of chapter 1. But Ruth replied to Naomi, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And this story is a great love story. It's a love story with a happy ending. And the key to the whole love story is this lady, Ruth. And all the blessings that follow in the future are dependent on this lady. God provides Ruth. And Ruth is a display of God's love and kindness and grace. Because Ruth is a Gentile. She's a non-Jew. And she's not any old non-Jew. She's actually a Moabite. And if you know anything from the Old Testament Moabites, they're not the sort of people that Jews mixed with. In Deuteronomy 23, the Israelites came to the Moabites and they asked them for some water and some bread. And the Moabites refused. And God himself said these words. He says, don't have anything to do with the Moabites. Don't go near them. Don't stay with them. Don't mix with them. And don't bring them into your own community. They were a rejected people. And here we have Ruth, an unlikely hero. Everything's against her. She's a Moabite and she's a widow. And despite that fact, God loved her. And God used her. And God used her in a mighty way. As we see later on, she was to become an ancestress to the Messiah. And that's a demonstration of God's love and his kindness and his grace. And the fact that God provided Ruth into this story as an important part of this story is a picture of God's grace. And it's a picture of God's grace to every single one of us. See, there's a lesson in Ruth here. And the lesson is that there's nobody who's so far outside the reach of God's grace. John 3.16 is probably the most famous verse in the Bible. But there's a great truth in it. For God so loved the world. There's no racial distinctions with God. Yes, we've been working through the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God chose a nation, the nation of Israel. But he chose that nation for one reason, so that they might be a blessing to all the nations. And he takes this lady Ruth, a Moabite, and she, he brings her into that nation, but for a purpose, that through her she might be a blessing to all the nations, that through her offspring a Messiah, a Savior would come who would be the ultimate blessing to all the nations. And the Moabites were a sinful people. That's one of the reasons why the Israelites were told not to mix with them. But there's no sin that's beyond the grace of God. God is a God of love. He's a God of kindness, and he's a God of grace. And no matter who you are tonight, you're not beyond the reach of God's grace. You can still experience God's love and his kindness and his grace. That's shown as God provides 
for Ruth. But it's also shown, secondly, as God provides food in chapter 2. Ruth and Naomi return. They're poor and they're hungry and they need food to survive. And we'll read verse 2 of chapter 2. And Ruth the Moabites said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up some leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, I love that phrase, as it turned out. There seems to be a suggestion there it was just a bit of chance. The accident there was a bit of luck involved. Just as it turned out, she turned out to be in the field of Boaz. Ruth didn't know who Boaz was. He had never met her. He wouldn't have known what she looked like. And as she went through all fields like the Lyceum, she wouldn't have known which fields belonged to which person. And although there might be a suggestion there that just accidentally happened, that she turned out to be in his field. As we read this book of Ruth, and in fact as we read all of the Old Testament, what becomes clear is these things don't happen by accident. The whole way through the Old Testament, it's clear that God is in control. God doesn't do coincidences. And God in this book of Ruth is working out his perfect plans and purposes. And in God's providence, she turns out to be in the field of Boaz. And she catches Boaz's attention. And because she catches his attention, he provides food and protection for her. Let's read verse 8 of chapter 2. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't, don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And wherever, whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars, and the men, the men have filled. And later on, as we read through these verses, we see how he gives her food as well. And he actually tells the harvester, drop some extra food on the ground, so she can pick it up as he follows behind And Naomi herself recognizes just the love and the care and how God is using Boaz to meet their needs. And we read in verse 20 of chapter 2, The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And what we see here through this as Boaz provides for both Ruth and Naomi is a display of God's sovereignty. That God indeed is in control. God is the unseen actor in this book. Now, there's no spectacular miracles in Ruth like you'd find in Joshua where the walls came crumbling down in Jericho. You'll not see a people going through the Red Sea, these spectacular miracles where you can clearly see God's hand. But just in the small everyday circumstances, and when you see the whole story put together, it's very obvious that God's hand, providential hand, is at work. As we read the Bible, as we go through this series this year, there may be some surprises for us in the storyline, but nothing ever surprises God. God is always in control. And when Naomi returned back to Bethlehem with tears in her eyes, blaming God and saying, I've come back empty, she could have said, asked the question, where is God? Where is God in my life? Look at all the wrong things that have happened. But years later, at the end of the story, maybe as she held that newborn baby in her arms, I'm sure as she reflected her life at that stage, I guess it's speculation, but I'm sure at, this, at that stage she could have seen the hand of God moving in the small ways and how he cared for them and loved them and provided for them. And as we read this story of Ruth, we read it with New Testament eyes and we can see where the story was ultimately heading as well. 
And I'm sure with the Apostle Paul, Naomi could say these words. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love Jesus Christ. God was clearly at work in the small matter. But thirdly, God shows his love and his kindness by providing a redeemer. And the essence of redemption redemption is reversal. It's a reversal of a bad situation to a good situation by the means of a redeemer. Quite often it's used in the New Testament to describe somebody coming out of slavery or imprisonment, imprisonment and being set free by a redeemer. And some might read this story here of Ruth and think upon Naomi as a bit of a schemer. She's an Old Testament matchmaker, isn't she? And she certainly can be seen to be forcing the circumstances, circumstances, telling Ruth what to do, what to wear, what perfume to put on, where to go and situ- uh, put herself, what situations to put herself into. But Naomi also had a responsibility because she had returned to Bethlehem with this young lady who was a widow, and she had a responsibility to look after her and to care for her and to provide for her. And everything that she does here is actually above board. There's nothing underhand. Everything she does is in accordance with the law of the land. And as we read through here in chapter 3 and 4, we come across two legal practices that are combined into one. Two legal practices that are to do with marriage and property. Whenever a man was died in Israel and he had a widow with no children, his brother had a responsibility. And his brother's responsibility was to marry the widow and to produce offspring. And that offspring then would um, bear the name, not of the new husband, but of the dead husband. And any inheritance would go to them. It was a way of preserving the dead brother's line. And also linked in this was a kinsman redeemer. That's a phrase we read several times in chapter 3 and 4. And whenever a poor person was in need and they had to sell some of their land, they just didn't sell to anybody. A near relative would come in and purchase the land a kinsman redeemer, they would redeem it so the land would stay in the family. And it's also a way of providing for the poor. It was an early form of a welfare system. Now, there were two people who we know of in the Bible who could have helped Ruth and Naomi in this situation. There's Boaz, and there's actually an unknown kinsman redeemer who's actually a closer relative. And he was unwilling to do the job. He didn't want to jeopardize his inheritance. When Boaz goes to him and tells him about the situation, he's very keen on the land. Every farmer, every businessman wants more land in his portfolio. But when he hears there's a wife that comes along with it, he's not interested. It's a bad business deal. Because if he marries Ruth and they have children, those children will not bear his name. They'll bear the name of Ruth's dead husband. And the inheritance will be passed on to them. His inheritance is at stake. And so for him, that's a bad business deal. But there's a contrast with Boaz. He was also able to redeem Ruth. But not also was he able to do it. He was willing to do it. He was willing to pay the price. The price to redeem the land. But also to put his own inheritance at stake. Two were willing, or two were able, but only one was willing to pay the price to redeem Ruth. And Boaz here, as we read in the book of Ruth, is a picture. And he's a picture of the greatest redeemer that we read about in the Bible. Our willing redeemer, Jesus Christ. You see, each one of us owes a great debt. A great debt of sin to God himself. And the Bible teaches in the New Testament that Jesus paid that debt. 
He paid that debt with his death on the cross to redeem us, to claim his bride. And why did he do it? Was it out of duty? Was it because he was compelled to do it and forced to do it? Well, the scripture tells us he did it because he loves us. He was able and he was willing out of love to redeem each one of us. And he paid a great price. First Peter 1.18 tells us that price. It wasn't silver or gold, but it was with his precious blood that Jesus Christ redeemed us. And very shortly we'll be coming to this table. And this table is a symbol and it's a reminder of that great price that Christ paid. And when we take that bread and we break it, that was the price that was paid. His body broken on a cross for love of us, his bride. When we take, drink that cup, that was the blood he shed to claim his bride. And so when we come to the table, we come to remember and to praise and to thank God and to worship Jesus Christ that he is the Redeemer who paid the price for us, that we can be free, that our sins can be forgiven, and we can be claimed as his bride. And the Bible speaks in the book of Revelation of a great wedding feast that will take place one day in heaven. This table isn't forever. Until he comes is what the Bible says. And one day he will come and claim his bride and take it to a greater feast where we'll be with him forever and ever. So what we see in in the book of Ruth is we see great redemption of Boaz claiming his bride. But it's a picture of an even greater redemption, the redemption that Jesus Christ paid for the church. But the fourth and the final act of love and kindness we see is God's provision of a son in chapter 4. And the climax of the whole story is with the birth of this young baby, Obed, right at the end. And there's real contrast with the start of the book of Ruth. Right at the start, we've got famine and we've got death. At the end, we've got the joy and the celebration of this new baby in the arms of Naomi. And this isn't just a picture of God's love and his kindness. It's actually part of the greatest story. This baby would one day look down at its own grandson, David, King David. And as we've said, the context of this book of Ruth is it takes place during the time of the Judges. And the Judges is a dark period in the Old Testament. And the last verse in the Old Testament, David mentioned this morning, says these words. The last verse in the book of Judges, sorry, said these words. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the implication of that verse is what Israel needed was a king. They needed a king to come and put everything in order. And what Ruth is described this book describes is how God acted to meet that need. How God was bringing a king into place. Ruth is a shining light in dark days. And the immediate purpose of this book of Ruth is to show us the ancestry of the Old Testament's greatest king, King David. There are many kings in the Old Testament, but one stands out. He'll stand out as the E100 series comes through and we are introduced to the kings, King David. And the reason he stands out is because he's the king after God's own heart, a great man of God. But as we'll soon discover as we work through the Old Testament, he wasn't a perfect king. And because he wasn't a perfect king, we're all in need of a greater king. And that's why the last five verses of the book of Ruth are actually repeated. You'll find them somewhere else in the Bible. You'll find them in the New Testament, right at the start in Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, we find the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
And these five verses are repeated. And they're repeated to show that Jesus is the descendant of King David. And that Jesus is the descendant of Ruth and Boaz. And this story is crucial to the plot line of the whole Bible. Of God's unfolding story of salvation and rescue. That's why this book is a shining light in dark days. But as we finish this evening, as we read the Bible, and as I'm sure you take up this challenge and read the scriptures this week, the Bible isn't a passive book. We don't read it just to tick it off and say we've read X amount of chapters. We read it to allow God to speak to us. And as we hear God's word, and as we listen to the Bible, we don't sit passively, but we need to respond to it. And each one of us needs to respond to God's word this evening. Perhaps you hear you're here this evening and you're not a Christian. You're not part of the church, the bride that Christ claimed to claim. And you need to realize that tonight. You need to realize that each of us are made in the image of God, yes, but each one of us is sinful. But in God's great love and his kindness and his grace, he sent his son Jesus Christ to be our redeemer, to claim us as his bride. You need to realize that and you need to respond to that. You need to turn from your sin and you need to turn to Jesus Christ. You need to trust him as your saviour and start living as one of his followers. Start living for the one who's able and willing to redeem you. But many of us here this evening are Christians. And we're Christians because of one fact. Because of God's love and his kindness and his grace. And if you're a Christian here tonight, you should rejoice in that. Rejoice in God's love and his kindness and grace, which has reached down and touched and changed your life. And there'll be a chance to rejoice and respond to it as we come to the table very, very shortly. But if you're a Christian also, you should be filled with the Spirit of God. Not only made in the image of God, but filled with the Spirit of God. And when we come into Galatians 5, we read about the fruit of the Spirit. And two of the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit that are mentioned there are love and kindness. We've seen love and kindness displayed the whole way through this book of Ruth. But if you're a Christian, those are two aspects, two of a number, that should be displayed in all of our lives. It was thrilling this morning to hear Roy stand up. And as he shared the sad news about Eugene, how was he able to thank so many people in this church who have displayed love and kindness in Eugene's situation? But all of us should be marked by love and kindness. Yes, we've all got different gifts. Yes, we've all different ministries. But if you're a Christian, because of God's love and kindness into our lives, we should be people who are marked by love and kindness. In our workplaces tomorrow, in our schools, in our homes, in all the situations that we come, because of God's love and kindness for us, we should display that everywhere we go. And those are quite individual applications I've just made there. But let's think corporately. This is a church, part of Christ's bride. A church is striving to be the church without walls. This church should be marked by love and kindness. First of all, within its own community, but also as it reaches out to the outside community who lives in this area. Will you pray for this church? I trust you do pray for this church. Don't just pray for yourself, but pray for this church, that this church might be marked by love and kindness as a response to God's great love and kindness to each one of us. Let's not be passive to God's word, but let's respond. And let's respond to the greatest love story the world has ever known.